The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist. I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I am absolutely delighted to welcome a good friend and colleague, Jennifer Wilkins. Jennifer is a food system educator. She is with the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell University, and I had the pleasure of meeting Jennifer when we were both Food and Society Policy Fellows together. And at the time, uh, well, I should probably back up and say, Jennifer, first, welcome. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I also remember hearing you speak, this is before we became friends, at a Society for Nutrition Education meeting where you spoke about the Northeastern Regional Food System that you had developed for your region and you were a locavore before the word entered the dictionary. So let's, we have so much to talk about. And you're also a syndicated columnist, I might add, with a great column called The Food Citizen that appears in the Albany Times Union newspaper. Yeah, that's right. So we have lots to talk about. So let's first say, um, could you define for me, please, what is a food system? Well, if you if you think about it in, in its uh, at its core, it's the the series of processes that get food from the place of origin to the eater, and so and, and not only those steps involved. So you might think about production and then processing, harvesting, transportation, processing, packaging, storage, uh, marketing, and consumption, and then waste as well. Um, so that's a kind of a linear look at the, the food system. But then those processes and that kind of linear approach or maybe even cyclical are embedded in other environments. So you've got the social culture environment that also interplays with the food system. You have political and economic system that's interplaying. You've got technology, research. And then surrounding all of that or maybe fundamentally shaping all of it is a series of policies, a whole set of policies. And, you know, anybody who's been reading anything about food in the last couple of years has been cluing into the fact that we have this huge policy called the Farm Bill, which really has a big impact on how our land is used and also has a huge impact, therefore, on our health. You know, it's so hard, I think, for so many of us to really get our arms around the food system concepts because they seem so large and sort of unapproachable and I think that's why I really like your Northeastern Food Guide because you take this big food system and you bring it down into a community and eating within one's region seems to make a lot of sense. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, that was really motivated out of an interest in linking food choices within a context, within an environmental context mostly. But when you start looking at what a regional food guide means, it means that you're actually devising a guide that helps people make food choices based on the foods that can be grown on a commercial level in within a certain area. 
So the, the food guide I developed was for the northeastern United States. So when you think of that, some things might come to mind. For example, that we have winter here. Right. And we have a fairly serious and, and long winter, although they are getting milder and shorter. So what, the, what does that mean in terms of then eating healthfully for at the consumer side of things? Well, that means that we have seasonality, that we have a diversity and a variation throughout the year of, of what people eat. And so the question comes up, well, could this be nutritionally sound? So one of the things when you develop a tool like that is you, you test it to see if you can actually develop diets through those months of the winter, the late fall, winter, early spring, that could be nutritionally sound. And so we, we did that. We looked at what kinds of foods would you put together in the spring, which is actually the hardest time, and could you get a nutritionally complete diet based on northeastern foods. And can you? Well, you certainly can, but it means that you're eating differently. You're consuming more root vegetables in the wintertime and in the early spring before those fresh greens are available. You're eating things that are in a different form. I mean, you could essentially eat almost everything you eat when it's in at its peak harvest time, but you're eating it canned or frozen or dried at different times of the year. So there are two things that go on. There's a seasonal variation in what you consume, and there's also a variation in the form in which you consume it. Well, I like eating that way because it lends to the feeling of anticipation. And, you know, there's something magical about having to wait for the strawberries to be ripe and the peaches to be ripe. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes it a lot uh, yeah. more enjoyable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my husband and I were just talking about this the other night. Well, actually, last night with, with some friends talking about peaches. You mentioned them, and I think that's just a terrific example because... You know, the peaches that you can buy throughout the year when peaches are not in season in your area really bear little resemblance sometimes to the peaches that you you hover over the sink and you, you bite into them and you catch the drips as they roll off your chin. I mean, that's a much different experience than the peaches that actually you can squeeze any juice out of them uh, sometimes it seems uh, when you buy them in the middle of the winter. Yeah, not worth Fresh. it. Exactly. You know, Jennifer, you may not remember this, but I remember being sitting in a circle with you, and we all had to identify our favorite food. Do you remember what you said? I think it was your favorite vegetable. I can't remember. <laughs> you said, I'm partial to parsnips. Oh, yes. <laughs> I do like parsnips very much. Yeah, I mean, how many people can recognize a parsnip today? You know, the younger generation, although I, I say that, on one side of my mouth, but on the other, I realize that I've been so uh, heartened by what I see in the younger generations with their their embracing farming and getting back to the roots. There seems to be a real back-to-the-land movement among the younger generations. And I know that you teach dietetic students now at Cornell. And tell me, what are you, what kind of messages, what are you hearing from the generation that you have in your classroom? Well, you know, it was really pretty amazing to me, and this is this is a brand new experience. I have not been connected in any, any sort of official, professional way to the dietetic internship program in the, you know the 16 plus years that I've been here until now. We have 10 interns, and and what really impressed me during the first few days of our orientation, when I would talk to them about how about their their sort of contact with ideas about food, many of them mentioned 
you know, Michael Pollan's books. They mentioned Food, Inc. Uh, maybe we should all go to see Food, Inc. together, they suggested. Um, you know, Barbara Kingsolver's books about, you know, all these things that I thought, this is really interesting. I, I wonder, and I, I don't really have any way of knowing at this point, if this is really an indication of, you know, a new sort of awareness and a new sort of interest on the part of, of people wanting to go into the dietetics profession, which, you know, I think would be a very positive uh, sign if, if that were to be true. Well, I think it almost is an indication of mankind's seeking survival because, I think, you know, I think if we don't have yeah. a change in attitude where we want to be farming and we have uh-huh. systems in place uh-huh. to support farmers, uh, we are going to be in a very sad state. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the thing, one of the positive things to, to I think recognize is that for these young people that are going into the field of nutrition is that that jobs are changing. Uh, there are more in Pleasant Hill, Missouri has issued a flood warning for the Petite Selling Creek near Boonville. Until Saturday morning, at 4.30 p.m. Thursday, the stage was 15.3 feet. Flood stage is 16.0 feet. Minor flooding is forecast. Forecast, rise above flood stage by this evening and continue to rise to near 17.5 feet by Friday morning. The river will fall below flood stage by late Friday morning. a very sad state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the thing, one of the positive things to, to, I think, recognize is that for these young people that are going into the field of nutrition is that, that jobs are changing. Uh, there are more opportunities now for generating an income and developing a profession around food systems kinds of issues and connecting nutrition with um, with the soil, if you will. I mean, there we have we know you, between the two of us, we know a lot of entrepreneurs, yourself included, that are really developing professional roles and and getting paid for it that that do this kind of linkage. Um, I think people are hungry for that. You know, speaking of the whole connection between the people and the land and the food, I know that you have just spent uh, several months in Italy uh, teaching there. And I wonder if you can describe the differences between eating in Italy versus eating in the, in the United States. And if you had if you had the ability to bring over one or two characteristics or traits from Italy and firmly plant them in the United States, what would they be? Well, you know, I think that um, the the freshness is is one of those one of those things that seems to be just really prominent uh, in in the food of Italy um, and the diversity within a narrow if you if you can say this a diversity within a narrow range of choices because most of the food in Italy is Italian. Right. So, but you can then at a number of you know your choice of ten shops in a very small town get a range of different kinds of pasta. 
know, mm-hmm. different raviolis, different kinds of pasta with different fillings. It's just astounding. And then you can you can also buy the the fresh sauces. So the kind of freshness and immediacy, I think, is something that is so clearly evident for the most part in the food in Italy. But, you know, I have to say that the, um, you know, junk food has not been able to, you know, junk food has made its inroads into Italy too. And obesity is becoming a public health issue in Italy as well. So it's not as if Italy has been immune to these kinds of forces in the food system by any means. But there does seem to be a different approach to eating. You know, my experience was that people enjoy eating together. They enjoy having long conversations over food. Um, and oftentimes the subject is food when you're talking over a meal. And that, that I think is something, there's something really valuable there. It's just kind of the, it doesn't matter, men, women, young and old, uh, tend to really enjoy talking about food and talking about the experience of enjoying, uh, food at a meal. It's just really, I think it's very interesting and, and wonderful. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Jennifer Wilkins. She holds Ph.D. in nutritional science. She is affiliated with Cornell University, where she is a food system educator. Jennifer, um, you are also a syndicated newspaper columnist, and I have a copy of your latest column from August 29th in front of me, The Food Citizen, Food Deserts Lack Nutritional Quality. It seems like um, you have gone from a very rich oasis-type environment in Italy, back to Ithaca, where um, despite the fact that it is certainly northeastern and a harsh climate, there are some very much enlightened eaters in Ithaca. Uh, True. So We're, We are very lucky here. I mean, our farmer's market is to die for. Aren't they? Really. Farmer's lovely. markets are yeah. wonderful. Yeah. They make the quality of life so enriched. Mm-hmm. But what, you want to talk a little bit about food deserts? I thought your article was really fascinating, and I think it um, merits attention from others. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was it just struck me because I had recently come back from the Society for Nutrition Education conference, um, which was in New Orleans, and there, very appropriately, we had presentation um, about the about what had happened after Katrina to the city of New Orleans related to food and how in a large part of the city grocery stores just simply were either decimated and because of that went out of business or went out of business because people had fled. And so there were large areas of the city that that actually did not have ready and especially readily good access to food. And that's really what we're talking about. And, and then I got back to Ithaca, and it just seemed like such an amazing contrast where I could get such an amazing variety of fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, grass-fed meats and, you know, pastured poultry at my farmer's market. And to then realize, because I did take a tour around some of the neighborhoods in New Orleans, that this is just not what a lot of people experience in the United States. As rich as we are, more and more people have not such great access to a rich diversity of food at a cost, at a a price that they can afford. 
Yeah, and then on top of that, so overlaying that, then in in some of these areas where there isn't ready access at an affordable price to really good, healthy, um, wholesome foods, there may be a glut. And what this uh, speaker called a swamp, which was again really appropriate for New Orleans, a swamp of, of really poor choices nutritionally. So you have poor access to really healthy food, and you have ready access to. Um, artificially cheapened junk food, let's just call it that. You know, it always amazes me there's an attitude of where someone maybe isn't well or isn't eating well. There's an attitude of, well, you know, they're just not making good choices. And I think it's really important for us, and I know both of us do this in our work, but we help people understand that not everyone has a choice. And you really just came from a very torn and shattered part of the country that doesn't seem to be being repaired as quickly as it should have been. Tell us a little bit about what you saw in these tours in New Orleans from a nutritionist's eye view. Well, it just it was so evident the lack of of any well any commerce really in some of the areas, but particularly the lack of any food stores uh, that I saw, and and just very small. Uh, there may be a gas station with some sort of a small shop attached to it that where you know the choices aren't that great. Um, and then you have a lot of land and, and more and more vacant land that is pretty much idle. So there may be an opportunity there if, if the investment could be made in production, uh, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And, and again, I'm no expert on what's going on in New Orleans, and I have this, you know, very snapshot view of it, but it did seem that in the areas that I saw, there just wasn't a lot of activity, and then a a sparsely placed homes that either survived or have been rebuilt. And you know there's going to be more storms, and so you always worry, you know, well, if we rebuild that area, or even Mm -hmm. if someone takes the time and trouble to put in community gardens, which could certainly help with a regional food system. Um, will they just be destroyed again during the next hurricane season? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there needs to be some sort of a, a security, uh, psychological and, and otherwise, that investment of time and effort that a garden really takes um, is going to pay off in the long run. Right. Well, for people listening all over the country who are curious about maybe developing some regional food food guides within their own communities, how would a person go about thinking like that? Well, you know, of course, you, you at least two major components to a regional food guide or, you know, a state food guide is, first of all, having a really good grounding and understanding of the, of the dietary guidelines and which food choices and how many servings from each food group is recommended for health promotion and disease prevention. And then on the other hand, exploring what what if your regional or your state, uh, whatever kind of or area of a state that you want to look at, what's your area's potential in terms of agricultural production? And this is this could be you know a very good study for a group group of people to do is to say, okay, what do we currently grow in our area or in our state or in our region? And then look back 50 years, look back 100 years to the diversity of, of production that, that was going on at that time. That will give you an idea of the potential. So, you know, I think these, these food guides should not only reflect current production, um, but also, 
also need to reflect because invariably in most areas of the country, at least at a commercial level, the diversity and the range of crops um, and also animals that are, are raised have has gone down, Iowa being, you know, one of the prime examples that's used over and over again. So if you look back in time, and, and this has been done in Iowa actually at the county level, is to look at the diversity of production that, that was going on 75 years ago, and that gives you an idea of, well, this is what can be grown here. So you can develop your food guide around the potential of an area based on climates and soils and, and um, you know, weather patterns. And how are we convinced to go from this beautiful biodiverse system to one of mostly monocultures? How were we convinced? How were, yeah, how were <laughs> farmers we? convinced? <laughs> um, well, well, that's a, you know, that's a, a very good question that I think would take a, a agricultural policy historian to really answer well. But my understanding is that farmers have been encouraged through, through policy and financial incentives that, that the policy provides to specialize and to maximize production per acre because a lot of the, the the direct payments to farmers and the subsidies that are given to farmers either focus on a particular crop or they fo- they are focused on a a base acreage and then also on a production level per acre so um, if you if you have a set amount of acreage again i am not an expert in this area the way to maximize your payments is to increase your production per acre so that's sort of the drive to monoculturism the drive to getting more and more production per acre how do you think we should go about changing the structure so that we have more biodiversity that we can get that back i i know what you're what you're saying about um, Iowa in particular, I've seen the data on, you know, how many animals and how many different crops were once produced right. versus today, and we can't feed ourselves regionally. We have become so dependent on the trucks to bring in foods from long distances, and I know, I know I've quoted you many times about the food safety aspect of that kind of food system where I think you coined the term, you know, we've got the, the nation's salad bowl out in California and it's not so good to all of us, uh, you know, digging into that one big bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what can we start doing, do you think, on a policy level to move us back in a more biodiverse direction? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know you just asked specifically about a policy level, but I'd like to maybe look first at at a at a household level, great, at a maybe individual policy level. Yes, um, because I think that part of this has to do with the skills that we could have, maybe once have, and could really develop again, and that has to do with management. I mean, when you look at the home economics, <laughs> which you know no one even likes to have that name anywhere near them. I mean, my college here at Cornell University is the College of Human Ecology. It was the original college of home economics, and that name was scrapped, um, as well as, you know, a lot of departments have changed that name because of the, I guess, archaic connotation it has. But we need, for many reasons, because of where we are with energy resources in the world, where we are with other natural resources in the world, we need to 
very fast gain some very basic skills. Cooking is one of them. And along with that comes a number of uh, other skills. Purchasing food, storing food, selecting, not wasting food. If, if we could, if we could manage the food waste that occurs from the farm gate to the table, we would be saving a lot of food. Uh, wasting in terms of not, you know, of it, throwing it out in the refrigerator level or throwing it out at the kitchen or throwing out leftovers, but also not wasting it by consuming it. So there, there's a lot that could be done in terms of our ability to feed ourselves if we were more um, conservative about how we actually use food. So that's one thing I think that we really need to look at is teaching at a very early age that food is a valuable thing and how to use it wisely, how to use it with honor and not, not wasting it. That would, I think, do us a lot of good. Well, I, yeah, I just wanted to say it was actually the, the talk that you gave at the Society of Nutrition Education meeting in, was it Albuquerque, New Mexico? Mm-hmm. Is that ringing a bell? Mm-hmm. That uh, umbrella title for that talk had to do with home economics. Oh, yeah. And I will never forget, it was you and Joan Gussow and Kate Clancy speaking about being proud to come from a home economics background. Mm-hmm. And it was like a light came on for me. And I thought, you're absolutely right. You know, our here at the University of Missouri, uh, our home economics department was renamed as well, Human yeah. Environmental Sciences, yeah. as if to say that home economics was somehow a lowly, a lowly subject, yeah. when, when actuality, you know, if you look at all of the subjects underneath that home economics banner, you exactly. yes, you've got food and all of the, the wonders that go with it, all of the skills that go with it, the appreciation, the lack of waste, the financial management in a home, the taking care of children and taking care of the clothing that we wear. Yeah. So it's something I think that uh, we should be very proud of and promote. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and if you think about it, there are now a lot of celebrities, right, right. around food. But these are the chefs. Right. Now, why why is the celebrity in the the really high powered chef, and not why shouldn't we celebrate the the skills that can be right here in the home? I mean, it's it's the same thing. We need to acquire more of those skills and have them be a part of a, a healthy life. I mean, we could do so much to promote sustainability, environmental resource conservation, and our health by gaining some of these skills, not, not the least of which is cooking and also gardening. I mean, gardening is one of those things that people say, oh, yeah, I could grow a vegetable garden. It's not that easy. <laughs> Jennifer, within yeah. the last, which we just have a couple of minutes left, mm-hmm. so let me ask you um, to... Tell us how we can be better food citizens. Well, you know, I think that um, there's the, the, the term sort of voting with your fork or voting with your food dollar. I think that is one of the things to do is when the choices are available to you and if you can afford them and work them into your, your food budget, to choose those items that really reflect not only health but reflect a sustainable food system. So you might want to think about 
well, if I choose these apples, then I am going to be doing something good for the farmer down the road. If I choose this kind of meat and maybe eat less of it because it is more expensive, I'll be supporting this farmer who's 30 miles away who's uh, raising grass-fed Angus, black Angus, and he's using a, a processor that's 15 minutes from his home. So, the, you know, thinking that, remembering that food has a story behind it and thinking about, is it a story I want to support? So every dollar you spend on food could be spent in a way that supports sustainability and health or, or doesn't that well. I think that's a wonderful message to end our interview with. And I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I know we could probably spend another several hours we together. Could. I'd love to. Um, you're, you're just a, a wonderful nutritionist. We have been talking to Jennifer Wilkins, who is a food system educator at Cornell University. And thank you to Jennifer. Thank you to our listeners. And just a reminder as we close that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you.